really enjoyed diving into this series on the seven churches. So we're on the fourth church. We're about halfway through. If math is super important to you, technically halfway through this sermon, we'll be halfway through. You get the point, though. We are kind of working our way through these churches. This week, we find ourselves, if you're following along on the map, in Thyatira. So John is on the island of Patmos. This is the disciple, the beloved disciple, on this island, gets this crazy vision of Christ, and then is told, I want you to write this vision down, what you hear and see. And there he is on that island in Patmos, and he says, and I want you to write it down and give it to the churches. See, that's the whole book of Revelation. But now the beginning of the book kicks off with an individual letter to each one of these churches highlighted in red. So we've been kind of working our way up the coast of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and then now we're going to head to Thyatira. You can see there, actually the dot is on the east side, on the, on the right side of that name. So coming from Pergamum, we're about 35, 45 miles east of Pergamum. So we're heading inland. And even that, kind of the massive cities were on the coast, heading inland, even kind of tips you off a little bit of some of the context that we're going to be in. So I'm going to go ahead and read. You can follow along in your own Bibles as we look at the letter to the church in Thyatira. If not, you can follow along as I read from the screen. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of, of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all of the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even in that, you notice churches is plural. Right? So he's addressing a specific church, but it's meant to be for all the churches. That it is with God's word. It was written to them, but it is clearly for us. There's things that we can glean from this. And I don't know if it's been helpful to you, but it's been really helpful to me to see kind of that clear structure and flow of each of these letters. They acknowledge the church. They give each church a unique picture of Christ. So there's the church, Christ. He commends them, 
he criticizes them and then gives them a charge. So as always, we're going to kind of walk through that flow. If you're good, I have one more word at the end, and if you're really good, it will still begin with a C, all right? So we'll just keep the C thing going. So that's what we're doing this morning, and let's look at kind of the church that we're dealing with. Here's how the letter starts. To the angel of the church in Thyatira. So he kind of kicked off reminding us of some of the other cities, and I think that is important, particularly in this case. So we are coming from Pergamum. And then now we're moving to Thyatira, and there is a pretty extreme, intense contrast between these two. Pergamum was a very proud city. Pliny the Elder, you know, he's from the first century, or this Roman historian says, no city is more famous than Pergamum. It was the capital. The word Pergamum is the word for citadel. You know, it sat on the top of a hill. Even Rome didn't defeat it. They willed themselves over to Rome. Pergamum, the city of kings. That's not Thyatira. So coming off of this mountaintop of power, we move kind of 40 miles east to Thyatira. So even from the picture, you can see this sits down in a valley. You know, most cities would be up on a hill, so they would be protected from other nations taking them over. But this is down in the valley. So this city was overthrown all the time. It was like constantly being ransacked. And so the primary purpose that this city served for much of this culture was when, like, roaming armies would come through, they would overthrow Thyatira, but the hope was that that would slow them down enough before the important cities could get ready to defend themselves. So that Pliny the Elder, what he says about Thyatira, he says, Thyatira and the rest of the unimportant cities. I mean, this is a podunk town. I'm trying not to joke about Ravenna, but it's going to come out, I promise you, at some point. Stop. We love Ravenna. All are welcome. Come as you are. Amen. All right. So, right? So here's this town. And how does, like, seriously, the purpose of this town was to slow down armies, not to defeat them, but to slow them down so the really important cities could get ready. Like, how does the general of Pergamum sell that? You know, like Thyatira and the governors get together, like, all right, what's the plan? Like, you guys going to come down off the hill, and this is our last stand, this is where they defeat them? Like, no, here's the plan. You're all going to die. Okay, like, uh, if I'm in Thyatira, like, hey, why don't we whiteboard this? No bad ideas. How about we all don't die? They're like, no, 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 here's the plan. You're all going to die. But as you're being killed and, like, the horses are trampling on your face, like, try to grab their feet so it slows them down for us. Like, okay, ready? Break. Good plan. Like, that is the city that we're talking about. Like, it's like the plot of 300 minus King Leonidas and everybody having shredded abs. Like, you know, hey, us, we'll just go slow them down, but we're all going to die. That was over and over the point of this city. Like, Here's what one, one commentator has a quote about this city. The whole impression of the city is of weakness, subjection, independence. That was where they were coming from. You know, I mentioned, you know, the tour guide from Pergamum last week of going through all the sites. Like, there are no tour guides in Thyatira. It's just like, hey, welcome to Thyatira. We have a Walmart. That's what we got. Like, uh, 
Like there was nothing particularly impressive about this city other than the fact that it was known for just being overthrown all the time. So that's the culture in the context. It was weak, independent. It was constantly being subjected to other people. They were getting beat up all the time. It was just a, it was a culture of just being a loser and constantly being defeated. I really wanted to make a Browns joke there, but their draft was actually good. I got to admit it. Like, they're in a good spot. I can't help it. Right? So that is where they're coming from. Thyatira. Constantly being overthrown. Now they had trade. That was kind of their main kind of claim to fame. There were no kind of famous temples to visit, no sites, nothing from the ancient wonders of the world. But there was a lot of trade, mostly famous for one of the roots produced purple dye, which is really important in that culture. It was super valuable. So in Acts 16, when Paul is going around Sharing the gospel, he comes, if it pings for you at all, comes across this woman named Lydia. And it says that Lydia from Thyatira, she was a seller of purple goods. There's a lot of trade here, but it was not an impressive city by any means. So, now we're talking about the city, but it affects the culture. That's the culture that this city was in. And maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe not your hometown, right? But they constantly felt like they were weak, insignificant, and just getting beat up. That's Thyatira. Maybe you can connect with that on some level. So this weak place, feeling insignificant, what is the picture of Christ that he gives them? The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So this church in this podunk town, feeling insignificant and weak, gets the reminder of the God that they serve, of Christ. Part of what we miss is kind of some of the nuances of what those particular things symbolize. Let me say it this way. So if like in our modern day, if the vision of John that he sees is, you know, if John's vision, he sees Jesus falling out of the sky and like landing on a truck that said prime across it and then like grabbing an apple with a bite out of it that looks like, you know, the Macintosh and ate that apple, all of us would instantly go, okay, I see what he's doing, right? Because it was a reference to something culturally relevant to them that we kind of miss out a little bit. So some of it is helpful to understand. So in this city, their principal deity was Apollos. If you know anything about Greek mythology, he's the son of Zeus, the son of God, and he is the sun god, like the sun in the sky. And so it's very intentional, this picture that Christ gives them. See, the powerful, you know, worldly structure of their day, of their city, was Apollos, the son of God, the God of the sun. Jesus says, man, I know you feel beat up and weak. I know you feel powerless. And this is the only time where Jesus embraces this title, son of God. He would prefer the term son of man. But he's saying, look, I know you feel helpless. I know you feel powerless. But the one that you serve is truly the Son of God. And as Apollos, they worship the Son God. Wood is in his eyes, flames like fire. 
So no matter how weak or powerless you feel, he's reminding them, you serve me, the true son of God, the creator of all things, that picture of strength. You're not going to stand before any worldly powers. You're going to stand before Christ. So if you're feeling that, insignificant, weak, beat up, remember the God that you serve. And I don't care how powerful the systems of this world look. That's the God that you serve. And that's what he reminds them of. So that is looking at Thyatira, the city, the picture of Christ. And now what does he commend them for? He tells them, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, if you're following along when we read up front, this is a messy church. But as you read this, this is a legitimate church. Like they are, he says, I know your works. Let me say that for a minute. You see this repeated all throughout the churches as we look at Christ's word to the church, oftentimes he says this, right? I know your works. It's one of the lies that was being believed in this town that how you live your life doesn't matter. How you spend your money, your sexuality, none of that matters. And it's very important. We just celebrate it. Look, your works, God doesn't love you because you're good enough and you do enough good things. They don't earn you salvation. But don't fool yourself that they aren't important. How you live your life is important. It matters. And he says, I know your works. I see you. Your faith, your service, your patient endurance. And even throws that out there, he leads with what? Your love. I mean, in God's economy, that's a big deal. Think of Ephesus, where they forgot their first love. What is so important, they're getting after it. They love God, and they're loving others. Throughout these letters, when it talks about love, it's most often God's love for them. This is the one church where it talks about their love for others and their love for God. So this is a good, legitimate church, albeit messy. But I lo- even look at the caveat. The latter works exceed the first. How many churches start off good and then drift and then somewhere go off the rails? That's many of the churches that we've read about. Not Thyatira. Man, they started off, you know, planted with the gospel. And what happens? They're actually growing. Think of our values. No, grow, go. This is a church that's growing in love for others. They are going and serving those around them. So this is commendable. And you have a faith in Christ, and you live it out in love and loving others, and that love is growing. But as many churches, it's messy. So they have their faith, and then he dives into his criticism of this church. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. This is interesting. So what is the main issue kind of going on in their church? You know, what were the two practices? Sexual immorality and idolatry. Those are the two things going on that's wrong in the church. 
And who remembers from last week, what were the two things that they struggled with? It's the same two. Same two. That's the point. Who remembers the same two from last week? Good job. You guys get an extra donut on the way out. Put it on my tab. I don't care. Right? So here's the thing. It's the same issue. Part of why that's interesting to me. Wait a minute. So Jesus, you're going to give us a picture you know, of all the things to struggle with, and you're going to give us the same two issues at this church from the last one. Like, if I were Jesus, I'd like, hey, can we move on to something else? Here's why I think we have a whole other letter, and they're struggling with the same issue. This letter is not primarily written to those struggling with these sins. You know, part of what was going on in Pergamum is people were being hypocrites. They were saying they followed Jesus, but they were really kind of dabbling and giving lip service to other gods and, and struggling with sexual immorality. What did he tell those people? He said, repent. This isn't necessarily a call to repentance. That's happening, but he's not primarily addressing hypocrites in the church. Who is he primarily talking to? The person in the pew sitting next to the hypocrite. Did you see that in the letter? He's talking about Jezebel and all her followers, but mostly, you see that first line, who is he really addressing? Those that tolerate Jezebel. So he's not just you know, talking about the person in the church who's a hypocrite and they don't live out their faith. He's talking about the person in community group with that hypocrite, but isn't saying a word. That's where I feel like this gets a little bit more real. So this church, there was a lot of mess going on led by this woman, Jezebel. You got to understand, this isn't literally a woman in this church named Jezebel. That's a reference to a queen in the Old Testament. And this is a woman who is like that queen. Some people actually think the situation that's going on here, it was a literal woman that it was the, the lead pastor's wife was this Jezebel. Caleb, I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think it's the pastor's wife. That's not, that's not what's happening here or here. Let's be clear, right? That, seriously. So <laughs> some of that is just guessing. You know, we don't know who this figure is, but it is a, probably a woman in the church after that woman Jezebel. And so if that reference doesn't ring a bell for you, King Ahab, he was a king over God's people, wanted to have more power, so he marries Jezebel, and she becomes queen over God's people. So what she does is systematically, now that she's queen, goes and starts slaughtering all the prophets of God, and she ushers in all the prophets of Baal. That's Jezebel. So she's leading God's people away from worshiping him and causing people to worship idols and false gods. So that's this type of woman. We don't know exactly the role, but we know she was influential leading people away from pure worship of God. But again, that's not who this letter is addressed to. That's happening. He's addressing those that don't follow that, that aren't living that, but what? They're tolerating it. Now, we got to camp out there for a minute. Because culturally, right now, there are many things that you can do and do wrong. But one thing that is 
just absolutely not allowed in our society is to be intolerant. I mean, how much do you hear that to not be intolerant and to, to, to accept other people's views? And it doesn't matter. Don't judge. How dare you say that view's wrong, that that is so intolerant and hateful? As I was preparing for this sermon, I was kind of reading that up. So when we say tolerant, what does that mean? What does that mean to be intolerant? You know, one of the definitions that came back, it was like from a crossword thing, and it was, what's a five-letter word for someone who's intolerant? A bigot. And how common is that today? How dare you be intolerant of somebody else's views? To be intolerant of another view of somebody else's today, culturally, is to be a bigot. This is a prize virtue in our culture, to be tolerant. Now what's interesting, the thing that we're so pushed to be tolerant is the exact thing that Jesus criticizes this church for. Is there a chance that you value tolerance a little more than Jesus does? Now surely culture has this crazy high view of tolerance. We can't can't be intolerant But that's exactly what the rebuke is here. And let me kind of peel that back a little bit, because that's a thorny issue. Because now to be intolerant is to be a bigot. I don't want to be a bigot. You know, raise your hand if you want to be a bigot. You like did your hair right as I said that. I thought you raised your hand. I'm like, get out of here, you bigot. I'm just kidding. Right? Nobody wants to be that. So here's the deal. When they say as a church... Say, hey, you know, pastor, are you a church that's intolerant or are you tolerant? You know, my response isn't going to be yes or no. My response is like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, we have to define tolerance, and that's part of the problem, is the world has hijacked that, and now the meaning, I think, has shifted. So should we be tolerant? If tolerance means accepting everybody, yes and Amen. I don't care where you come from, what you believe. Look, you have value, and you're creating the image of God. You're welcome here. All are accepted. But here's where it gets tricky. So the actual definition of tolerance is accepting people that you disagree with. So there's acceptance and agreement. I can get down with that definition. But the problem is, the world says you have to accept and you have to agree. Time out. Easy there, Kimosabi. You No, you don't. See, tolerance now, when it gets to the point where you have to throw out truth, that's where it goes beyond what the Bible calls us to. I want to accept everybody. I'm not anti-anyone. Does that mean that we agree and that all truth is equal truth and that there's no truth or falsehood? That is not the biblical world that we live in. So (laughs) a couple of things I want to say that. One, when somebody, now again, this is huge in our culture, right? You can't be intolerant. So when somebody's telling you and they're dogmatic that you cannot be intolerant, at that moment is being intolerant. (laughs) Like, do you see that, right? Like, it is hypocritical at best. All of us are intolerant. We're just deciding for what and when. Should we tolerate racism, church? You intolerant. You hate monger. You're so into... Wait. 
There's always a time to be intolerant. But the question is, for what? And when somebody's dogmatic that you can't be intolerant is being intolerant. But I want to go beyond that because I also think if that's the problem, the church is intolerant, what's the answer? The world, it's tolerance, right? Do you know what a synonym for tolerance is? Apathy. To be tolerant, I tolerate you. I'm apathetic towards you. Just recently, I was getting my hair cut. And I know it's confusing because you're like, dude, you haven't gotten a haircut in months. It was a while back, but I promise I've gotten haircuts before. Right? So I'm getting a haircut, and my barber says this. And tell me if this, if you haven't heard something like this. Hey, man, I'm... I'm not judging. I don't care how you live your life. You know, I don't care. You can believe what you want to believe. Like, I'm not judging. I don't care. If you ever heard something like that, raise your hand. We've all heard it. Hey, I don't want to be intolerant. I don't care. You, you, know, you, you do you. You live your life. Did you hear how that sentence started? I don't care. It's apathy. So, Are we to believe that there aren't things, beliefs in this world that are dangerous and destructive, and are there dangerous and destructive behaviors? Yes. So wait a minute. I'm supposed to just tolerate that and watch you go down a destructive road because, hey, I don't want to be intolerant. How about the answer not being tolerating each other, but loving each other? And love and truth go hand in hand. So accept everybody. We're not anti-anybody. Even Jezebel, like the worst figure that you can think of in the Old Testament, what it said, but she refuses to repent. She was given time to repent. We're not anti-anybody. We're not hateful of anybody. But we want to love people enough to give you the truth. Love demands that truth go hand in hand. But when tolerance is the point where you just remove truth Now we're in apathy. That's not my goal. It shouldn't be yours either. We all know this, right? You know, real friends will be honest with you. How do you know a real friend? They're the one like, hey, bro, you got something in your teeth. And I got to tell you, right? You're like, no, I'm serious, like a big old piece of broccoli. Like, get it out. He said, that's how you know a real friend. They're willing to tell you the truth. I don't want to go towards tolerance where it's just apathy, where people that you love, and that's who this is for, all of us have people in our lives that are walking down destructive roads. Is the goal then to tolerate that and watch them destroy themselves? I hope not. Accept everybody. I accept where you're at. I'm for you, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. This church watched this woman lead people astray to go down destructive bad roads, and they didn't say anything. See, a lot of this language of rule, they will rule over you, is shepherding language. So a shepherd's job is to care for the sheep. So when a wolf comes in and starts terrorizing the sheep, does the shepherd go, oh, I don't want to be intolerant of wolves. Oh, no, wolves, you're, you're a hungry wolf. I don't want to say no. Oh, gosh. No, you don't tolerate that. Some of you are from homes where your dad was the shepherd of your home. They were passive or weren't present enough, and they just tolerated you going down destructive roads. To be a shepherd is to protect the sheep. It's to bring truth, not hate or judgment, but to bring love and truth. But 
they tolerated it. But ultimately, that's not their charge. It's not to repent. These are the faithful group. What does he tell them? But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. I want you to look at that charge. The very bottom line, I underlined it to make it, you know, pop. Hold fast what you have until I come. So this is Thyatira. Weak, insignificant Thyatira. It's being so tempted to compromise their beliefs, to walk away and be just like the world. They want to throw in the towel, and he doesn't beat them up. He encourages them. Brother, sister in Christ, hold on. It's hard. It's difficult. Hold on. I've been reading through 1 Peter. It says Satan is roaming around like a roaring lion looking for people to be picked off. How many of you feel insignificant, you feel weak, and you feel beat up and tired? Do you know Satan's just waiting for you to let go of your faith in Christ so he can pounce on you? That's what he's warning. Look, as you get weak and tired and you feel helpless, and it seems like nobody in the world is living this out. What is the point? Everybody out there is having fun, living the good life, and we're here sacrificing and suffering for what? Like, are you even here? Look, I get it's hard. I know you want to walk away. Hold on. Don't quit. It says, I know it's hard. I know when we look out there, it looks like the church is losing. But he says, hold on. He has eyes of fire that can see through all of that garbage. I know it's hard. Don't quit. Don't give in and throw in the towel and be just like the rest of the world. It's worth it, but you can't quit. You have to hang on. Some of you have a lot of Jezebels in your life just calling you down the road to compromise and then to living life in a way that dishonors God. He's saying, hang in there, hold on. I remember becoming a Christian. It was later in high school. And I remember getting to that point, so I was dating another girl, and she was a Christian, and we started going to church. And I remember getting to that point where, like, oh, man, like, we're going to try to wait till we're married. And I was like, oh, no. And literally part of it is because I knew in my high school I was going to get slaughtered and be made fun of for the kid who's actually waiting to get married, you know, waiting to have sex until we got married. Gosh, I don't want to be that guy. No joke. I'm a coward. I'll try to be less of a coward than I used to be. I remember in high school throwing my girlfriend under the bus. You know, talking with my buddies and like, oh, you guys are waiting until Mary. I'm like, yeah, man, she's trying to wake. Like, I ain't down with that. But like, you know, I guess like if that's what she's trying to do, I guess I got to do it, you know, like. But that ain't me, player, you know what I'm saying? I'm not kidding. You're laughing like, I remember because I was too afraid to admit, no, like, yeah, I'm trying to follow Jesus. I think his way's right. I, I didn't want to be a coward. I, I was a coward. I didn't want to get made fun of for being that kid. So I threw my girlfriend under the bus. We broke up, as you can imagine. <laughs> my high school 
was rough. So I talk about these podunk towns. That, that's one I was raised in. There was like 90 of us in the class. About 70 graduated. I have it on pretty good authority. There were two of us that didn't smoke weed. It's hard, right? Like the pressure, like the entire class is puff, puff. Only two of us are like pass, pass. Like everybody else is not easy. Nobody wants to be that kid, especially in high school. If you're in high school, listen, I know it's hard. When every one of your friends are sleeping around and you're going to be the person that doesn't, you go to college, everybody is partying. And then you're going to be the one that doesn't. It's not easy. Seems like you're the only Christian at your work, doesn't it? Everybody else is living this wild life, and you're going to be the one goody-two-shoe Christian who doesn't go out, doesn't party, doesn't sleep around when you guys travel out of town. He says, look, I know it's hard, but hang on. Don't quit. Hold on. And Peter says, stand firm. I know you want to quit. I know it's hard. Stand firm in your faith. Don't compromise your morals. Don't compromise and be quiet about your faith in Christ. But he says, look, I know it's hard. And so he gives them courage. This is what he encourages them to stand firm. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. Thyatira the most insignificant of all cities, I don't know how they would have been able to wrap their heads around this. Did you catch the length of this letter compared to the other ones? It was the longest of all letters. So this church, in worldly standards, that is completely insignificant, is Jesus spends the most time investing in them. And you feel insignificant and your life doesn't matter. Jesus with eyes through fire says, I know how you feel, but I know the truth. And if you feel insignificant, he reminds them of who we are in Christ. That you will rule over the nations. Of all the cities we looked at, Thyatira would have been the least likely to be given this. But God doesn't look at you the way the world looks at you. If you feel weak, beat up, and insignificant, he reminds you of who you truly are. You're an ambassador of the king. When God sends his ambassadors, yes, they might get beat up. But he says, don't forget who you are. You're a son of God. You are significant to him no matter how it looks in the world. And you can rest in that. Stand firm. Don't give in. Keep the faith. Hold fast. Remember who you are, but then ultimately, remember what you will receive one day. He says, I will give him the morning star. I know you want to quit, but I want to remind you, if you don't quit, ultimately, what is waiting for us? And to try to figure out the morning star, you can stay in the book of Revelation. He finishes it, Revelation 22. I, Jesus, 
I've sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I know you're beat up. I know you're tired, you feel insignificant, but he says, who you truly are is you're a son and daughter of the king, and one day, if you hang on, you will spend eternity basking in the glow and the love of the bright morning star, Christ. Don't quit. Stand firm, hold fast. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I imagine that this room is full of people that are beat up, that feel weak and insignificant like our brothers and sisters in Thyatira. God, remind us of who we are. That you, with flames of fire, you don't look as the world looks, that you see through that mess you know our significance in you that one day we will rule with you but God we are tired would you give us strength to hang on and in this dark world that when we get to you that bright morning star arises get us to that place where we experience not by faith but God by sight your warm embrace God help us to be faithful Jesus' name.